Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. It's a really uh, interesting scripture. It's one of the more preached on passages uh, that I've been aware of in the church. And uh, it's got a lot to say, and I hope that we can do it justice this morning. Mark 10, verse 32. It goes like this. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to them. He said, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Uh, You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places have belonged to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, as we look at this text through imperfect words that that I share, Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, come to each and every one of us and touch our hearts, speak to us where you are inviting us to a deeper relationship with you, where you are inviting us to a sense of understanding and freedom that we've never had before, where you're inviting us to be a part of the good plans you have, Uh, for our community. Lord, come and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this passage, uh, we could talk about a lot of things, and and we're not going to be able to talk about everything that this passage talks about, but we're just going to start by going through it and looking at the story, trying to understand and making some observations along the way. If you look at the passage, first of all, it says that Jesus is leading the way. Where are they going? They're, They're basically, he's leading the way on a walk to Jerusalem. And remember now that in the previous days and weeks to this, Jesus has already been telling his disciples that I'm going to Jerusalem for what? I'm going there to die, right? Yet Jesus, it says, is leading the way, and this idea is that there's some, there's some, there's some resoluteness to this. There's, there's some intentionality. It's like there's, there's just some focus to what he's doing, and, and the disciples are looking at Jesus going, you've said you're going to Jerusalem to die, And yet you're going there like this? And they're astonished at how resolute he is, how focused he is. And they're also afraid. Because in this passage, we see some of the lows that they're facing. And yet, yet, imagine, let's just back up a second and get into the emotions of the disciples as they're over the last few weeks. They've seen Jesus heal people amazingly. 
They've seen Jesus be confronted and, and the, the intellectual leaders of their day, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the political leaders who are the intellectuals of the day coming to Jesus trying to trap him. And Jesus consistently confronts them and gets away with it and, and spoils their traps. And, and the crowds are, are clamoring to Jesus like he's a rock star. And the disciples, if you can imagine them in this setting, if you can be there with them, they're probably looking at Jesus going, this guy is untouchable. He's amazing. And yet he's talking to us about the fact that he's going to Jerusalem to die. Can you imagine the highs and the lows that they're feeling in there? And, and so Jesus resolutely walking, leading the way, to Jerusalem, not just going along, not being drug along, not going along passively, but going there with a certain intensity. They're astonished by this, and Jesus recognizes their astonishment and pulls them aside to talk to them. He recognizes their fear and pulls them aside to talk to them. But he doesn't do what most of us would think about doing in a situation like that. I mean, if you're leading your family or you're leading some, your kids or, or, or your workplace or someplace and you're going to a place that's difficult and dangerous and everybody's starting to get anxious and fearful, you're probably going to go to them and just, as the leader, say, it's okay. Kind of almost a, there, there. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus actually pulls them aside and goes into greater detail about what's going to happen than he ever has he says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests. Being more specific and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. This is the first time he mentions being handed over to the Gentiles. And what that means to them is that they know when he's handed over to die to the Gentiles, they know the death is going to be a cross. For the first time, that becomes extremely, extremely clear to them. And who will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him. They, he gets into more gruesome detail of what's going to happen and what's expected there. Three days later, he will arise. You see, Jesus has this resolute willingness to drive him to the cross. And the reason why is said at the end of the passage, it's, it's said to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that word ransom, we hear it in all of our crime dramas today, and it's usually associated with kidnapping, and it, and it was to a certain extent in Jesus' day. But in Jesus' day, the primary understanding of that would have been very different. The primary understanding would have been a ransom to free somebody from slavery or a ransom to free somebody from a death penalty so that they wouldn't be killed. And this, this ransom would have been a very, very high cost. And in some instances, it would have been a person becoming a substitute for this other person so that they could go free. And sometimes I think today, even for people who are not sure of their faith in Christ, but even for some of us who have made that decision and we're sure of our faith, I think we still sometimes struggle with this whole idea of a substitutionary blood sacrifice that Jesus has to make for us. I mean, why couldn't Jesus just have said, why couldn't God have just have said, you're forgiven with words and that'd be good enough? We struggle with that because when we deal with the idea of blood sacrifice, it takes us back to ancient times and we associate those ancient religions with, that did blood sacrifice as superstitious and evil and barbaric and bloodthirsty cultures and, and we don't want to be associated with that and we struggle sometimes with that language and that idea in the Bible. 
And yet if we back up from that just a little bit, all of us understand that substitutionary sacrifice is the greatest form of love. We talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago in terms of our kids, and we talked about how they're so needy, and, and, and unless we as parents are willing to sacrifice our rights, our desires, our time, even at times suffer in their place, they will not be raised to not suffer themselves. So there's something about the way we love as parents that prevents our children from suffering later but yet we take on willingly this idea of sacrificing, right? We see it in all of our great stories. Now, I probably could have come up with a, a thought more, a more current movie, but how many have seen the movie Dante's Peak? It's an old one, right? But we see the theme of substitutionary sacrifice there as well, don't we? We see in that story the grandmother sacrificing her life so that her grandkids and her daughter and husband can live. We see it in... Even when it's not involving death, we see it in, uh, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy with Frodo and Sam giving so much, sacrificing so much, being willing to resolutely go on a journey that involves pain for the sake of others. And we call that the greatest acts of love, right? I just got done listening recently in my, in my free time. Once in a while I listen to movies or documentaries on the iPad when I'm just getting ready in the morning and stuff. And I was listening recently to Ken Burns' documentary on, on the war, the World War II. And really well done, but you hear over and over and over in that documentary stories of people willing to resolutely go into harm's way knowing that they were either going to die or suffer severe pain for the sake of love for their fellow soldiers or for the sake of love for their country. We know that substitutionary sacrifice is the absolute greatest, deepest form of love in all of history. So why would we be surprised when the story of God includes that? When God, who is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, and because he is, he's the most trustworthy person in all of the universe, he doesn't shrug off injustice. He takes it seriously. And yet at the same time, even though there's this injustice going on and a demand for justice, he chooses to take, because of his great love, to substitute himself, to take our pain, the wrath of God that we so deserve. You see, I think in the end, most of us want to really get past some of the blood side of it. We, we don't really struggle with the substitutionary sacrifice that God makes for us. I think we struggle all of a sudden a lot of times more with realizing how desperately sinful we are and how much we need it. You know, Paul uses this term referring to himself after he had been a follower of Christ and a great leader in the church for years. He says this term, I am the worst of sinners. And I think sometimes when we read that statement, we, we read it and we think, ah, he's just saying that, you know, or he's got a bad history and we don't have that same bad history. You know, I, I, here's what I think the path of our growing in Christ looks like. I think the longer we're a Christian, and I know this is true in my life, the longer we're following Jesus, even when our lives start to change and we start to do the moral things that we're supposed to do as Christians and not fall trapped to some of those things as well, or, or, or we're just living as better Christians, whatever we define that. Even when we do that, 
the longer we're with Christ, I think there's this dichotomy that happens in us where today I realize at such a more deep level how desperately corrupt I am, how sinful I am. And at the same time, I realize so much more deeply this great joy of the fact that I can't do anything about that, but He has. And I am loved. And I can be at peace. It's just this amazing dichotomy that shows us how great God's love is for us. It's the greatest love story of all time. And yet the passage moves on from where we left off into this, uh, how else do you describe it? This amazingly awkward moment. This just socially out there moment. So, So again, picture this. Jesus is just taking the time to take his fear, the fear of his disciples and the astonishment of his disciples, and instead of saying, there, there, he's taking the time to be much more specific about the difficulty they're going to face and about the difficulty he primarily is going to face going to the cross, how he's going to be spit on, how it's just going to be brutal torture. And moments later, two of his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, teacher, we want you to do something for us, whatever we ask of you. Doesn't that sound like, uh, it sounds a little bit like when my kids were toddlers coming to me asking me to get something that they knew I wasn't going to give them, but they wanted dad to say yes before they told you what it was, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what this question sounds like. It's, it's this, can you imagine if you, were him, if you were Jesus, what would your response be to that? Wouldn't you be going... I just told you I'm going to go through this and you're concerned about yourself? Could you just think about me for a moment here? I mean, can you imagine being in that setting? And yet Jesus, however, responds with patience and kindness. And he asks the question, what do you want me to do for you? This is an amazing picture. The disciples are coming to him, and let's just call it what it is. They're praying to God. They're praying to him. And they're not praying right. They're praying selfishly. They're praying insensitively. It's all about them. They're praying. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them and get angry with them for not knowing how to pray or or coming wrongly or coming even with selfish motives. He asks him a question and he invites him into the conversation. And I think some of us avoid prayer sometimes because we're so concerned that uh, we got to say it right. We got to do it right. We got to know that we're praying for the right thing. And, and, and Jesus just wants us to come and talk with him, have a conversation, let him in, be honest and real with him, even if we're out there. What do you want, Jesus asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Prime Minister and Secretary of State. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And This whole statement here throws the disciples even further off balance. Because when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I drink... His disciples, being good Jews, would know exactly what he's referring to. And that is that the Old Testament, when it talks about drinking the cup, it almost always refers to the cup of God's wrath poured out justly upon our sin. And Jesus is saying, can you handle that? 
Can you handle dealing with the evil and the, the problems of the world, not just your own, but the problems of the world, and be so overwhelmed with that that it feels like a baptism, that it's just swallowing you up and you're being drowned in it? Can you deal with that? But the disciples, their answer is, yeah, we can. So Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. He asks another question, and then they say, we can, and clearly showing that they still don't get it. And don't understand. And Jesus' response is this. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. You know, Jesus is saying if we learn to follow him, that we will indeed experience difficulty and persecution and trial and pain Because his call to us, what he's saying to us, his call to us in life is that I want you to be agents of my ransom to other people as well. I want you to be agents. My primary purpose in your life is for you to be agents of God's grace to other people like I'm coming to be an agent of God's grace. Now, it's not the same as Jesus in one sense because Jesus, we know, is the perfect sacrifice. He's forgiven all sins. He is offering forgiveness. It's only through him that we receive that. So we can't do the same thing. But what he's saying to us is that I am asking you to stay close enough to people, stay involved and engaged in relationship enough with people to have the same kind of resoluteness that I I have in pursuing my destiny in in, in Jerusalem to stay in relationships that are difficult and painful, to stay close enough that you become pictures of, that you become ambassadors of, examples of the grace I have already accomplished on the cross and the resurrection, that they can see it in you, that you stay in those tough relationships. And that's who you are. That's who you become. So the passage moves on and we see that the others, the the ten others, hear this conversation with Jesus and they become indignant. And we don't blame them, do we, right? I mean, if you you knew that Jesus had just told you you're going to go through one of the most difficult times possible, the, the, the ultimate of difficult times as a team, and then all of a sudden you saw two of your team members stepping outside of that and jockeying for position, what would your reaction be? You'd be indignant too, right? And... This whole thing that's going on is threatening to blow apart Jesus' team. And he calls, them a, calls a huddle together, and he teaches them what I think is maybe the most valuable lesson about living, about leadership. You see, we often hear this passage preached upon on the, on the idea of servant leadership, and that, that, that throws some of us because we don't necessarily always identify with leadership. But, but basically, Jesus is saying here is, is this is how you're going to be a great parent. This is how you're going to be a great kid. This is gonna, how you're going to be a great worker, a great boss, a great co-worker. This is going to be how you live your life to be that agent of grace to be my ambassador, to bring ransom to many. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let me just ask you a question. When you hear the word servant, what comes to mind? What do you think of? 
I think for many of us, this short clip is actually what comes to mind. Enjoy. Isn't that what you think of? What do you think of servants are a lot of times? Don't you think of somebody who's got no other ability just in the stack chairs to just do stuff? Somebody who isn't as smart or capable or... And don't we oftentimes think a servant is someone who just gets walked on? Especially when Jesus says what? Servant of who? Servant of all. That means I let everybody walk on me, right? That's exactly what that means, right? And we think of that, but it doesn't mean that. Jesus teaching us what servant of all means is we have to look at him as an example. Because in verse 45, he says, I didn't come to be served but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He's setting himself up as the example. And as we've been looking at this real Jesus series, have we ever seen Jesus as a doormat? Have we ever seen Jesus allowing people to walk on him? No, we've seen Jesus as what? We've seen him, even in this passage, confronting the disciples and, and not just saying, there, there, I want to meet your needs. No, he takes them and drives home the reality of what they're going to face, in a sense, giving them a map to hold on to during the difficult time coming up. But he's direct, isn't he? And I think if you're like me, as we've looked at Jesus throughout this passage and throughout, throughout this series, sometimes we see Jesus confronting in a way that makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because he is so direct. He confronts the religious leaders. He confronts the disciples. Calls Peter, get behind me, Satan. I mean, he's just, he's just, he's not a doormat, is he? At all. He's never shied away from strong confrontation. And he's never shied away from a strong sense of who he is and what he's here to accomplish. And I think if we look at servant of all and think, ah, you just got to be a doormat, I think we misunderstand what Jesus is asking here. And we're confused about who we're serving. See, Jesus isn't, when he says, saying the servant of all, he's not saying, I am being directed by everybody around me. I'm at their whims. I'm at their needs. Jesus, who's he serving? He's serving the Father alone, right? And because he has such an identity with the Father, he realizes that the Father's primary heart and primary goal is to ransom many. And the only way he can do that is to serve the all that come into his life each day. To serve the needs of other people around them. To be agents of God's grace. And when we get... In that relationship with God, we can't help but become infected with the same idea that each one of our daily roles, whether it's at the, at the meeting we have this afternoon or the, the football party we have this evening or the, or the work appointment we have in the morning, that God's primary purpose for us, God's primary heart is that we would be agents in that time period to bring ransom, His ransom, His good freedom to other people. Not worried in our life about self-promotion or our own needs or our comfort first. But we have this focus on who God has put in my day today, in the next hour, in the next minute. And how can I serve them in a way that helps them discover this love of God? You see, the world system, which is what James and John and all the disciples are fighting with, and we fight with all the time is that we gain significance, we gain authority, we gain power by competition. This competitive environment, we gain power either by superior knowledge or we gain power because of superior relationship connections or superior relationship skills or superior work production or some other competitive advantage. 
And our life is focused on gaining those situations in our life. And Jesus and James and, or James and John are, are struggling with this. And Jesus flips that paradigm on its head and gives them a lesson that really, in the end, is all about internal character. It's all about our own sense of security and where it comes from and trusting God. And one of the points that I can draw out of this is first that great influence and leadership starts with being a great follower. Jesus says, a servant is one who, I mean, let's just think about it. A servant is one who what? Serves, right? Looks out for the good of others. Follows well. Jesus, in the midst of the exploding character and the insecurity of his disciples all around him, hits the nail on the head of what tanks so many of us in being good followers and also being good leaders. We don't like to follow other people who are imperfect, sinful, insecure in themselves, right? Jesus confronts a bunch of insecure, sinful, imperfect disciples and said, the greatest among you will be what? The slave of all. And that's the rub. We like serving good bosses. We like serving good organizations, good people. We like working with easy co-workers, right? We've all seen, haven't we, in our work settings, the person who gets promoted, been trying, trying to get there for a long time, and and then uh, he gets promoted or she gets promoted and turns into this puffed-up beast. Have you experienced that? All of a sudden they get the power and they, and they become this puffed-up person. They're really difficult to work with. Well, let's draw this back to the other conclusion. They never learn to follow well, so they don't lead well. But let's, let's look at it even further. Isn't it, isn't it so easy to do? I remember working uh, with a, a staff years ago. I was, uh, and and uh, there had been one person who had been recently promoted, and they'd almost destroyed the fabric of the staff. It was just really a bad situation. And we got a group meeting together, and this person finally, it was admirable softness. They came to the table, and they said, they thought, they thought, now that I'm a leader, I needed to have all the answers. So I didn't listen. It's all about competitive advantage. It's frustrating, isn't it, to face the imperfection around us and the relationships that we're in, whether it's work or whether it's marriage or whether it's our next-door neighbor who constantly leaves the lights on facing into our bedroom or whatever it is. It's constantly difficult, and we want to leave those situations. But the question is, how can we serve such a difficult person and find any pleasure in the process? Because that's really what Jesus wants us to discover He wants us to serve the alls around us, even the difficult people, and discover a sense of pleasure in doing that, a sense of joy in doing that. First of all, it starts back with what Jesus, we aren't serving them, you're serving God, and you're serving His idea of who they are and His mission. But it becomes difficult, doesn't it? So there's a guy, um, we'll just call him Joe. I'm not going to give you the real name, and I'm not going to give you enough details to know who he is because of who listens to podcasts around here. So I won't reveal who it is. But, but there's a person who, he served in this area, and, the, and there were two people who were over him in authority who would constantly help approve goals that this Joe was supposed to achieve in his work environment. 
And then they would walk out and they would go behind his back and talk bad about him and they would passively resist anything he was trying to do, trying to set him up for failure. And this went on for five, six, seven years. And Joe the whole time was going, God, you brought me here to do something. I know I'm supposed to make an account, do something this, in this business that I'm in, but this is just so hard. And every few months, Joe would go and say, I'm going to leave. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave. I just can't stay here. And every time he'd go pray, God would say no. And it got really frustrating. And it wasn't, and Joe would tell you, it wasn't until he got to the point where he could bless and serve even these detractors that God allowed blessing to come into his career and come into his ministry and his life in general. Tim Keller, I was listening to him a couple weeks ago and, or in the past week and he was, uh, he was speaking, it was a podcast of him speaking to a bunch of the best and brightest in New York City's uh, primarily financial district. They were the kind of the up and coming rock stars who were studying for graduate degrees in uh, one of the colleges there. And he told this story to them about a, a guy he knew who was a partner in a, in a very, very successful business in New York City. And uh, one day his partners came in and said, we want to we add a new major client. And it just frustrated him because this new major client represented everything that violated Joe's or not, no, we're not talking about Joe anymore, sorry. I don't even know the name of this guy. Everything that violated his values and principles. And as he goes on to tell this story, the, 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 the Keller tells the story, this guy wanted so desperately to leave. He said, I'm done. It wasn't like the business they were going to do with him was illegal or unethical. It was just that the company they were going to take on as a, as a, as a new major client represented everything immoral. And he wanted nothing to do with it. And the easy thing for many of us sometimes in those difficult situations, and some of you face those in your workplaces, is to just leave. But every time he went to God and he prayed, he, said, he just felt like he couldn't. And finally he came to the conclusion that God was saying this to him. He said, I want you as a partner to go into that partner meeting and I want you to vote no. But if you lose, I want you to stay. And I want you to serve your other partners to make this new client, this new contract, go as successfully as you would any other client. But I want you to take none of the profits. Can you imagine what a testimony, what an amazing testimony that was? Because isn't that a picture of what Jesus does for us? He comes to us and He comes to those difficult people we work with with an offer of grace, with an offer of ransom, with an offer of freedom even before we want it. And He stays close in relationship even when we are being immoral and rebelling against Him. And this was such an amazing testimony to all of His partners and the other people in His firm because it said, I love you enough to stay close to you even when I disagree with you. I love you enough to be an example of how Christ is pursuing you even when you were involved in sin that is so desperate. What a picture. When you know who you serve and that your whole life purpose is to serve God's mission of grace, to ransom even the most evil, God may very well lead you into those situations. Isn't that what he did with Joseph when Joseph was serving Pharaoh? 
Isn't that what he did with David when David was initially serving King Saul? Isn't that what he did with Daniel when Daniel served multiple Babylonian emperors in the Bible? Isn't that what we see Jesus doing when he comes? Going directly with a resoluteness into the difficulty, into the pain of relationships, into the pain of sin of other people and refusing to back away. Instead, pressing in to str- more strongly to be an agent of ransom, an agent of grace. The second thing Jesus challenges us in this passage, I think, is this. It's, he challenges the core way we think about life, the core, the core thing that controls all of us, that causes stress and anxiety, workaholism, that causes us to have so much conflict. He challenges us to let go of this compar- competitive comparison that drives our lives. James and John are jockeying for position. The rest of the disciples are rightly indignant. It's, it's this competitiveness against one another to secure your position. And the culture treat, teaches us all around us to trust our competitiveness to get a job, to con- trust our intellect to get a promotion, to trust our work ethic to get a promotion, to trust what we do to ensure that we have the security of, of wealth in our, in our, in our life or, or the recognition of responsibility. And Jesus is basically saying he wants us to get rid of the idea of a competitive market in which there are only so many positions to be had. Isn't that really what drives us? I mean, we talked last week and then this week I heard even more detail from some, some people how the competitiveness affects our kids. I heard this week from uh, a parent who, who was just commenting on how amazingly insane the competition was uh, for club sports at the second grade level. I've talked to people who are trying to get their kids onto uh, travel basketball teams and they're, they're pushing their kids to get these private $50, $60 an hour trainers who are just these, to give them a competitive advantage. And there's just so much stress and so much jockeying going on, even among parents and such stuff like this. And, and yet Jesus gives us this challenge here to let go of that. And he gives us through the scripture another analogy that helps us understand it even more readily. He talks about the fact that we're all one body and that everyone, everyone has a place. There's not this limited scarcity of jobs. Sure, I mean, there's only so many people who can get on a basketball team. We understand that. But in life, there's not a scarcity that would prevent you from getting where God wants you to be. He has a place. He has a plan. He has a good plan for you, predestined ahead of time for you to walk in. And yes, we can choose to be disobedient and walk away from that and make it a little bit harder for him to get us there. But he's planned ahead of time to get us there. It says here the, you know, to the disciples, he goes back to the disciples and says, you've asked to sit on my right and left hand, but that is already for those who, it, for whom it has been prepared. Did you hear that? It's past tense. It was already determined. And you know who those people that it was prepared for were? They said, we want to be with you on your right and left in your greatest moment of glory. Jesus' greatest moment of glory was on the cross, and on his right was a thief, and on his left was a thief. And one of them chose repentance and received grace, and the other chose not. And Jesus invites us on that same journey in our relationships with people. 
to go to the cross with people, to be close enough to bear their pain, knowing that some will choose and some won't. But he still says, I want you to have a resoluteness in your relationships with people to go after them, to not avoid the difficulty, to stay faithful, to not leave, to serve me and serve me alone. Because the reality is sometimes God may want you to leave a place, right? But we don't do it unless we know God says to do it. And we're confident in that. When outside of that, we assume that we're supposed to stay. stay. And we see John, even in the coming ten days or so, give or take a few days, up through, the, up through the Passion Week of Jesus going to the cross, and we see how dramatically even this lesson changed his life. Because John, this one who just is jockeying for position here, ends up being the one who stays the closest to Jesus throughout the whole difficult process. He's the one we see in the courtyard of the religious leaders staying close with Jesus, unafraid to be there. He's the one we see at the foot of the cross. He's the one who serves Jesus' earthly mother, and Jesus turns to him and says, would you take care of her? Why? Because he's begun to grasp this idea that, that I can't run from difficulty. I can't run from pain. I have to stay in the relationships God has called me to until he releases me, even when it's painful, even when it's difficult. If the worship team would like to come. Inclusion. This call to be the servants of all. To be baptized with the baptism Jesus is baptized with. Jesus says he's promising there will be difficulty. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. He's promising us that there will be difficulty because it's all about his grace. And think about it. If we're agents of his grace, is grace needed when perfection exists? Is grace needed when no sin is around, when no pain is around? Do we even need grace? We don't, do we? So if we're going to be agents of God's grace, it means we have to be these people who learn to be resolute like Jesus, pursuing, pressing into those difficult relationships. Ransom isn't needed unless there's slavery and imperfection and sin. But as every other area of your life becomes more about serving God by serving others, You will, like Jesus, we all will, like Jesus, walk through the cross to the resurrection and new life. We'll get the wonderful joy and privilege of seeing lives around us change and people we never thought could change, bosses we never thought could change, family members we never thought would ever be any different. All of a sudden find freedom and we get to be a part of that picture. And painting that picture in their lives. And it's such an amazing thing. Jesus, in his resoluteness going to the cross, goes there because he knows the power of God will show up. And what he's asking us to do is to have that same kind of resolution. To go into these relationships knowing that we can't do anything. But expecting the power of God to show up. Anticipating him to be there. To ransom them through your faithfulness of love that gives them a picture of His love and forgiveness for them. I want to leave you with a couple questions as we uh, enter in the last couple songs of worship. What's one practical way you can walk out being a servant to all? The all that are in your life, meaning those who are around, who are around you this week. What's one practical way? Maybe Jesus has brought to mind as we've been talking that difficult person that you just, you just want to get away from. You just wish they were out of your life. How is God asking you this week to be His grace 
to have a resoluteness to press into them with his grace and his love. And, and I think maybe, maybe a, a little bit more of an introspective question is appropriate for us to ponder as we worship too. What are the areas of your life where insecurity or, or whatever causes you to want to self-promote? To not trust that God has a good plan to get you where you are perfectly designed to be. To doubt him and to take stress and anxiety on. Would you, as we're worshiping, just give those things to God? Just breathe a prayer saying, God, I want you to take this. And would you give me your spirit? Would you give me your peace? Join us as we worship. So here's the invitation. Um, we've got the prayer over here, Ariel, over in the back here, and I'm going to ask you to respond uh, to prayer. And, and one of the reasons why we do prayer is because we can talk all we want about what we want to do in life. We can talk about overcoming, for instance, the feelings of difficulty we have with the difficult people in our life. And sometimes it's only when God's presence comes and touches us that those feelings melt to the point that we can even behave in the way he's calling us to. The reality is we can't do stuff on our own. We need God's presence. And sometimes we face difficult decisions and with difficult people in our life and don't know exactly what we should do. Sometimes it's right to pull away. Sometimes we need to press in. And how do we do that? We don't know how to do that. Some of you may have been praying about some of those difficult relationships and you're going, I think this may be God, but I'm not sure. You know what? Have somebody pray for you and Maybe God will speak something to them that confirms. That happens with me a lot. When I'm not sure, I'll have other people pray, and, and God will speak stuff to them. And, and, and it makes it so much easier to face those difficult times in life. I know that many of you had specific ideas of people come to mind when we talk about the people that you need to press into. My invitation is that you would allow somebody to pray for you over those issues. And just, you can go back there. Some of the people who are going to pray for people, would you mind heading back there so there's somebody to welcome them right now? During this next song, I want you to go and get prayer. So here's another way of saying it. Jesus was so resolute to go to the cross because he saw what was worth redeeming. You get to be like God to the difficult people around you. You may be the only person in their life who sees what God sees as worth redeeming. You may be the only person who gives them a picture of who God's made them to be. Not what their sin, not what other people say, not what the world says they should be. That's what God's called us to do. Let's go ransom people this week. God bless. If you would love prayer for any other reason, just go ahead and go back there anytime. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.